you'd like to follow I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 103, verses 15 through 18. And then I'd like to ask Abraham if he would pray God's blessing on the pronouncement of his truth. Psalm 103. Psalm 103 at verse 15. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more. But the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his precepts to do them. Let us pray. Lord oh, Jesus Christ in heaven, we are grateful we can be here, we are grateful, God, that we have a walk to do this. We know, Lord, that that walk to be here does not come from us, but comes from you. This love we have for you comes first when you are so grateful that we can have this in our lives. As we, as we go through this life, we can count on this love and that love. We thank you, Lord, for that word that you have given to us. Grateful God that we can come here. We are grateful God that you can give us understanding. We are grateful God for the preacher who preaches this to us. That he spends time and energy understanding and searching and looking at people. And then he comes and talks to us and tells us what's there for Lord. Thank you, God. Thank you, Almighty Father. Bless us. Bless his healing. Bless his healing. Bless the Lord. Amen. Amen. But the loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. His righteousness unto children's children. I want to focus on this evening. Righteousness is an absolute necessity, is it not? You remember how that in Job, Job raises that, I'm going to call it famous question, if you will. Bildad the Shuite has spoken in chapter 8 and he made this question among others for inquire I pray thee of the former age and apply thyself to that which their fathers have searched out for we are but of yesterday and know nothing because our days upon the earth are our shadow almost echoing Psalm 103 in, in 15 and 16 because our days upon earth are a shadow, shall not they teach thee and tell thee and utter words out of their heart? And looking over at the next chapter to Job's response to Bildad, Job answered and said, Of a truth I know that it is so, 
But how can a man be just with God? Or how can a man be righteous with God? Isn't that the question? Wasn't there a day when each one of us stood by ourselves probably asking that question, how can I be right with God? How can a man be just with an absolutely holy and perfect God? How can a man have any righteousness at all before such a, a holy individual as our God is? Those are questions which need to be asked and they need to be answered. Definitely, we have a need of a righteousness, not our own. No question about it at all. We read about righteousness in the New Testament, of course. Paul has a lot to say about it. In Romans 5.17, he speaks of imputed righteousness. Righteousness being imputed to others. The righteousness of Christ in this case in 5.17. Let me go back to 16. And not as through one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment came of one unto condemnation, but the th free gift came of many trespasses unto justification. For if by the trespass of the one, death reigned through the one, much more shall they that receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, even Jesus Christ. Paul speaks about a righteousness being imputed to those who through the gift of faith believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their righteousness. He is the only righteousness that there is. We read of him in Malachi 4.2, that promise regarding the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings for his people. And in Jeremiah 23, Jeremiah speaks of, by way of prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is indeed himself the righteousness of his people. In Jeremiah 23, Five and six, behold, the days come, saith Jehovah, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is the name, his name, whereby he shall be called Jehovah, our righteousness. He is our righteousness. God's going to raise up, Jehovah's going to raise up unto David a righteous branch. And he's going to execute justice and righteousness. Righteousness just flowing all around his throne. And he is Jehovah, our righteousness. And then Isaiah speaks of this same person in Isaiah 45. We read these same references to this same individual in 45, 24. Only in Jehovah, it is said of me, is righteousness and strength. Even to him shall men come. And all they that were 
incensed against him shall be put to shame. In Jehovah shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. And I believe that pertains as well to the Israel of God that Paul speaks of. All they shall come. All the seed of Israel shall be justified through the righteousness imputed, the righteousness of this one that the prophets speak of. And Paul has more to say as well. It's one of his keynotes, if you will, imputed righteousness. In chapter 3 and at verse 22, well, let, me, let me go back to 21. But now apart from the law, a righteousness of God hath been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ unto all them that believe. The righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ through the gift of faith. And just one more, please. Paul again in the fourth chapter of Romans. We read, even as he makes reference and cites Psalm 32, that well-known Psalm of David, even as David also pronounceth blessing upon the man unto whom God reckoneth righteousness apart from works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not reckon sin. The people of God, the people for whom Christ died, they are counted to the imputed righteousness of their Savior, counted as righteousness. The believer possesses, one man wrote regarding this psalm, the believer possesses the happy assurance that these blessings are free, not only to his own soul, but also to the souls of his children after him. Referring to this and his righteousness unto children's children. The loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. What are we to make of that? This man makes of it that this righteousness is imputed not only to this happy believer, but also to the souls of his children after him. Is that what the psalmist intends to say? The covenant which God made with Abraham, recorded in Genesis 17:7, famously says, adds unto thy seed, unto thy seed. And one man writes in his commentary on Psalm 103. He sees this in David's words. When David said unto children's children, he sees a connection there between that and Peter's first sermon in Acts 2. When Peter, according to this writer, ratified with equal fullness to the Gentile church according to Acts 2.39. Acts 2.39, considered by this writer as a linchpin, and frankly, not to that writer alone, but to many pedo-baptists. That's a linchpin. When Peter said, 
unto them, unto his hearers, after the, he preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost. For to you is the promise and to your children. To you is the promise and to your children. It does sound somewhat uh, complimentary of David's Psalm 103, speaking of children's children and his righteousness unto them, unto children's children. Great joy to parents. His children, the children of the parents, that is. He learns through this psalm and through this part of Peter's sermon, he learns that his children are graciously included in the same covenant with himself. Now pay attention, please, to how that is brought out by Peter. <clears throat> From verse 36 through 42 of Acts 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God hath made him, that is Christ, of course, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom ye crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent ye and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, unto the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For to you is the promise, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call unto him. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, and he continues on, but we read that then they that received his word were baptized, and they were added unto them in that day about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers. They continued in the exercise, the practice, the usefulness of all the means of grace that God had provided to his church, to his people. Certainly there would be great joy to parents if these things were so. Great joy to parents when the, when the parent learns that his children are graciously included in the same covenant with himself. For to you is the promise and to your children. Is this proof text for baptizing infants? As many, many, many professing Christians, many, many, many true Christians believe. The Westminster Confession of Faith tells us about baptism in their view, according to their mind. These uh, framers of that confession almost 400 years ago. They say, baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, 
which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. But at point four in that confession, in the words spoken on baptism, they go on to say, not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. That came to uh, particular attention to me a number of years ago when we attended a, a debate between uh, one of the uh, big men on campus at the Greenville Seminary, uh, Greenville Presbyterian Seminary. Um, doesn't matter what his name was. Uh, I'm sure he remembers it. But he uh, was debating a young a Baptist pastor that came from Louisville to debate him on it. And of course, we were all biased, those of us uh, among the attendees. Um, I think there were probably 10 of us, and there were probably 12 students from the seminary, and that made up the audience. But, uh, and there was probably bias on both sides, but even setting that aside, I think the young man uh, won the day, but he wasn't, he wasn't given any such accolades for having done so, simply because of the tradition that the Pado-Baptists have. And, uh, and of course, he was a, the Pado-Baptist debater was a distinguished professor of the seminary. But is that what we have in Acts 2? Because the confession of faith and most every comment you read about infant baptism, they use Acts 2.39 as a, as a linchpin, as a, as a key text to support the baptism of infants. Is that what we have just read in Acts 2? I don't believe it's what we just read. I don't see anything in there about infants being baptized. I don't see anything of that nature at all. The promise is to you and your children. And one Pado Baptist has said, we have a providential recognition of infant baptism at the very founding of the Christian church. Right after Pentecost, at the very founding of the church, we have what he chooses to call a providential recognition of infant baptism, but even the famous B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield of Princeton acknowledged that you can't find anything at all in the New Testament about infant baptism. It's just not there. So I don't know where this individual derives this providential recognition because it isn't recognized by the words spoken. But look at this Acts 2 that we just read. And look back, if you can flip back and forth maybe, to our Psalm 103. And see what's being said about these individuals that are being spoken of. These the promises to you and your children. But what is the promise that he's speaking of? Shouldn't the antecedent be the promise spoken of? And what is the antecedent in Acts 2? Peter's calling unto them, Repent ye, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
unto the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's promised if you will repent and come to Christ. That's promised. I believe that's the promise when he says, for to you is the promise and to your children. Yes, the promise is to our children that if they repent and believe, they will be saved. In the same way that we repented and believed and were saved. The promise is to you and it's to your children. Three thousand were baptized on that day. Not one word about one infant. And you can go to John, the baptism of John the Baptist, when he baptized great numbers, multitudes, came to him to be baptized of him. No reference to one infant among all those. And here we see, following after this promise is spoken of, we see that then they that received his word were baptized. They received the word. When's the last time you saw an infant receive any word? Those that received his word were baptized. And also we read in 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers. They didn't have to wait 10 years, 20 years, 30 years to be able to continue steadfastly in the apostles' teaching. They weren't infants. They began immediately upon being baptized. They received the word. And they joined the church. They were added to the church. And I submit that a similar thing is found in Psalm 103. The loving kindness of Jehovah in verse 17 is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. The loving kindness of Jehovah. Who is the loving kindness of Jehovah if it's not Jesus Christ? The loving kindness of Jehovah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that what? Them that fear him. No infants. Infants may fear not getting the next bottle. There may be a number of things that they fear if there is really any true fear. But they don't fear anybody. They don't fear anything. This is not speaking about infants, but it goes on. When it, when it goes on to say, His righteousness unto children's children. And how are they described? To such as keep His covenant. Is an infant going to be able to do that? No. And to those that remember His precepts to do them. Again, not speaking of entrance. They're obviously speaking, David and Peter are obviously speaking of those descendants or progeny, whatever word <coughs> that you want to use. They're children. In other words, those that come after them. The promises to them and those that come after them. Doesn't that encourage you to know that there is a promise made to our children? even if they're not in Christ today, that there's a promise made regarding our children that if they repent, 
that if they believe, they will be saved even as we were. That's what Peter's saying in my view, in my mind, and nothing, nothing to do whatever without, with regard to infants. But there's also, some people might say, well, what's the big deal? Is it gonna hurt anything to baptize the infant? I've even heard people say, of course, they're almost certainly unbelievers, but I've even heard people say, it's not gonna hurt anything, let's just cover our bases, you know, just in case we'll baptize the child. Wickedness, wickedness, as well as ignorance. But there are two, at least two, and probably many more, but two serious results growing out of this error of infant baptism. One is the corruption of the church. The corruption of the church. Bringing people into the church. You see, they make them members when they baptize them. They become covenant children. And they're members of the church, but they're not full members. They're members by association, I guess. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they define covenant children, but it's because of the, the covenant that their parents are under that they were baptized and brought into the church. The corruption of the church. If you'll bear with me, I want to just read something that I discovered. I don't know if you've read Thomas Shepard, one of the New England Puritans. I've had great admiration for him, and I still do, but I couldn't believe what he wrote about this. And it's, it's called Church Membership of Children. Cleared up. You tell me if you think it's cleared up. Cleared up in a letter in answer to the doubts of a friend. Shepherd says, when we say that children are members by their parents' covenant, I would premise three things for explication. That children of godly parents come to the fruition of their membership by their parents' covenant. But that which gives them their right and interest in this membership is God's covenant. Now I think he's talking about the parents when he says that. The interest in the membership is God's covenant. And, the, and the, their children come by way of their parents' covenant whereby he engageth himself equally to be a God to them and to their seed. This, I suppose, is clear, he says. Well, it's not clear to me, and I can't imagine that it was even clear to him. But he goes on saying that according to the double seed. What? The double seed, the elect seed and the church seed. Oh, there's a church seed. Now we know, we understand now, it's all been made clear. There's an elect seed and then there's a church seed. External and outward, internal and inward. And because the covenant makes the church, hence there is an inward and outward membership in church estate. There is an outward Jew and an inward Jew. We know that all that are of Israel are not of Israel in the faith. Is that what he's talking about? Not really. He's talking about church membership and he's making it all clear now. He's telling us that there are three kinds of people in the world. I always thought there were two kinds of people in the world. 
from our perspective, there's believers and there's unbelievers. Believers and unbelievers, sheep and goats, we find in the scripture. Sheep and goats. This notion of covenant children. That makes a third person. It makes a third individual. They're not unbelievers, they're not believers. They're somewhere in between, according to them. The saved and the lost in the scriptures, the sheep and the goats. That's, that's, what, that's the damage that's done to the church. When we have all this mixed multitude. And Paul speaks of the mixed multitude in 1 Corinthians 10. Speaking about those that fell in the wilderness. Because God was displeased with them. And I'm quite certain that the bulk of those were those same ones that came out of Egypt with the people of God and that were called a mixed multitude. Stragglers or whatever. But they didn't belong here. They didn't belong there. But they fell in the wilderness. They didn't believe. They were unbelievers. I think that's one of the prime issues and one of the prime corruptions of the church is because of infant baptism and bringing covenant children, bringing them into membership in the church. <coughs> you may have heard of the halfway covenant. Can't blame that on Thomas Shepard, I don't think. Although he was around about that time. So I'm not certain. But it was something that was begun by the grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. And the problem was that the people who had migrated, translated over to New England, their children were baptized. But when they grew to maturity, they didn't profess faith in Christ. And so they couldn't be confirmed, as they call it. Today, anyway, they couldn't join the church. They couldn't partake of the Lord's table. So this was a big problem. Also, when they started having children, then they wanted them baptized. Even though they didn't profess faith in Christ, they were baptized when they were infants. They wanted their infants baptized. And so somebody came up with what's been called over a long period of history, the halfway covenant. We can go ahead and baptize them. You think it's bad that they baptize infants on the basis of one or just one of the parents? If, if, the two, if they're both not believers, just one's fine. That's a little bit hard to believe, isn't it? There's something that the parents can't even agree on and yet they're going to baptize their infant. But now this halfway covenant, now they're baptizing on the faith of the grandparents. Just so long as we can get them baptized. And it corrupts the church. You can't help but corrupt the church. It's not that we, it's not that we assume that, that everybody in our church is a true, sincere believer. We can't read hearts. And we, we hope and pray and trust that there aren't any unbelievers in our midst. But we can't guarantee that. We can't promise it. We certainly can't prove it. But to take people into the church that don't even profess faith in Christ, and infants that can't profess faith in Christ. That's the corruption 
that has overwhelmed the church. We wonder why, why the church has gotten so liberal, to put it that way. Evidently, it's been liberal for a long time. But there's another, another problem, another serious result out of this, area, uh, this issue. The issue of presumptive regeneration. Have you ever heard of presumptive regeneration? It was formulated by Abraham Kuyper in the Dutch Reformed Church just around the turn of the 20th century, 1908 or somewhere around there. And they had, to their credit, they had debates in, back and forth for uh, several decades before many of them threw it out, the idea that we can presume, because of the covenant, we can presume that that infant is regenerated and baptized them. I don't know what the difference is between that and Rome, Rome's baptismal regeneration. It really amounts to the same thing, it would seem to me. But the theologians of the liberated, not sure what that is, capital L, liberated, and the free reformed and Netherlands reformed traditions oppose the doctrine of pres presumptuous regeneration. And here's their opposition, and it's good, with, because they say it provides parents, and especially young adults, with a false ground for the assurance of their salvation. Parents begin to regard their children as saved because they were baptized. Young adults begin to regard themselves as regenerate because they were baptized. Pastors begin to assume that everyone in their church is regenerate because they were all baptized. Thus, very little of the preaching is directed to unconverted persons and often neglects in the preaching the necessity of repentance. We're back to Acts 2, weren't we? Peter said, repent. Now, if those infants had actually repented, I guess we'd be fine. But they didn't. They couldn't. And I have to add that there's a form of presumptive regeneration in many churches where they don't even practice infant baptism of infants. Uh, and it has to do, I think, with the, what they call the, an age of accountability. And I know this firsthand over the years. Children in these churches where the families have been there two or three generations and the children have always been in church. They've always been churched. A lot of them are PKs and we heard about MKs this morning. A lot of them, they're assumed to be Christians just because they've been there so long without even a profession of faith. But when they get to the age of 13 or somewhere around there, in many of these churches, people start pressuring them don't you think you ought to get baptized? And they finally relent and they're baptized. And I've heard some really ignorant professions of faith by some of these 13-year-olds. And it's really sad, but I'm just submitting that there's a kind of a presumptive regeneration in these churches as well. It should hardly 
It should hardly surprise us that the attitude of the Jews, the attitude that the Jews evinced in Christ's day and beyond, that their attitude would be emblazoned upon the minds of many of these young people. That attitude that said, we are of our father Abraham. We have our we're of our father Abraham. We don't need you. We've already been circumcised, and now today these young people can say we've been baptized. I was, I was in middle age when the Lord arrested me and uh, a fellow worker who was actually a pastor um, struggling along with the church that had split their numbers, but at any rate, he came to the realization, he and I were only a year apart in age, he came to the realization that he'd never been converted. I came to the realization that I'd never, I was just playing church before that. Sometimes not even that. But I'm just saying that this man's history was with the uh, Christian Reformed Church out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and, and em embraced that presumptive regeneration. In other words, he went through, the, he was in the church all his life, and, and when he got a certain age, then he, then he learned the catechism well enough to get through the catechism class so that he could be confirmed, so he could take the Lord's table. Twenty years later, he realized he had never been converted. I'm just saying there's that danger, and that's one of the serious results out of this practice of infant baptism. What does it hurt, they say? Does it, does it hurt anyone if an infant's baptized? It hurts many who are deceived into thinking they're regenerate when they're not. It's only God's grace that, that woke that man up, that woke me up. And it hurts the testimony of the church, doesn't it? Who, who's a believer? What is a believer? What is a Christian church? It hurts. The church is witness. In the midst of that controversy that Edwards was in, embroiled in about the halfway covenant, in the midst of that, <coughs> Jonathan Edwards famously de described the many children having been baptized as infants and coming up, growing up in, in the churches. But he, he spoke of those baptized infants as a very brood of vipers in covenant, covenantal diapers. You see what the problem is? You've got all this mixed multitude that way. Got all this mixed multitude. You've got believers, unbelievers, and make-believers. Got three kinds of people. And the scriptures only speak of two, believers and unbelievers, saved and the lost. May our sons and daughters be clothed in the robes of the righteousness of Christ through the everlasting covenant, not Abraham's covenant. We're beneficiaries of the covenant of grace to Abraham when he was going to be the father of vast multitudes as, as the numbers without numbers 
as great as the number of the sands on the seashore as the stars in the sky. And we're all, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're part of that. But we're not under the Abrahamic covenant. In Jeremiah 31, we read the covenant that applies to us. When God spoke and said, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And we are of the house of Israel according to faith. Of the house of Israel after those days, saith Jehovah, I will put my law in the inward parts, and in their heart will I write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That's, that's the covenant we want our children and our children's children to be under. Is it not? And as leaders in the church and as members of the church, let us do our best. We can't regenerate anybody's heart. We can't, we can't make somebody believe that the Bible is the word of God. We can pray. But let us do our best as much as lieth in us. Let us do our best in whatever lies before us whereby we might be given some ability in this by God, ye be used of him. Let us do our best to have a church of regenerated believers. Let us pray. <coughs> oh Lord our God, we thank thee even as we consider all the ins and outs and all the historical issues and errors and false teaching and in the midst of wonderful teaching. Father, we thank thee that thou hast protected so many of us through all these years from being swept away by false teaching. And Father, it is not because of anything we have done. It is only thyself who has made us to differ. And we praise thee and thank thee for it. In Jesus' name, amen. He'd rise for the benediction. It's uh, from Galatians 3.29. And if ye are Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Amen.